We are in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 18. Paul is continuing to answer the question that the church in Corinth asked him back in chapter 8, verse 1. Do we have the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Paul in chapter 8 says, yes, of course you have the right as a Christian to eat meat sacrificed to idols because we know that idols are not gods, that uh, they have no power over us and that you can eat. But remember that there's another issue at stake and that is our freedom to eat must be tempered or refrain from if it caused damage or will destroy a weaker brother. Now, this is what it means to live cross-current lives. We're calling this series Cross-Current because that how, that's how God is calling us to live in this, in this world at odds with the larger culture around us for the sake and glory of Christ. It's cross-current living because we live in a world where people are continually demanding their rights. They believe they deserve them, but Christ calls us to live differently, and Paul spells that life out for us in the book of 1 Corinthians. It is a life where we give up our rights and privileges for the sake of following Christ. Christ himself taught this in the Gospels where he said, if any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, this kind of life takes more than just altruism. It requires a change of heart, a change of heart that only the gospel can produce in us so that we can live the way that Christ calls us to live. This kind of life, this cross-current life, is when one is not wrapped up in themselves, but is centered on Christ Jesus. Let's then hear the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If others, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my workmanship. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife or do as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? I do not say these things on human authority. Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the ox that God is concerned? Does, not, does he not certainly speak for our sakes? It, is, it was written for our sakes because the plowman should plow in hopes, in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, it is to... Is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this right, rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, 
We have not made use of this right, but we endure everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the spiritual offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor have I written these things to secure any provisions. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my grounds for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that, I, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so, that, so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Paul always gives us more than we ask for, doesn't he? He gives us more than he asks for here because he doesn't just answer the question that the church in Corinth asks. It seems that the church is passionately and equally divided over this question of whether or not Christians can eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now, this means more than going to the marketplace and buying the meat and bringing it home. It also included going to the temple when you're invited by your non-Christian friends or family to some special event and having that event in the temple itself. Instead of a yes and a no answer, thankfully, Paul gives us principles. And this is important because what these principles do is that it allows Christians from any time and any culture to determine what the Lord's will is for him or her because uh, they can apply these principles to their lives on issues that the scriptures do not clearly speak of. But Paul doesn't stop with just this question because the question that they ask, can we meet sacrifice to idols, is simply the presenting problem. Paul knows that there is a much deeper issue at stake here, an issue of the heart. It's like the woman who goes to her pastor and says, Pastor, do I have the right to divorce my husband? And that might be the presenting problem, but the, the heart issue that must be dealt with is, is greater and more important. Now, Paul looks beyond the present problem to the heart issue, the attitude that lays behind the question that the church in Corinth has been asking. Paul, after giving his principles in chapter 8, goes on in chapter 9 to deal with the presenting problem. In chapter 9, he, ad he addresses the heart issue by calling us to live life in an entirely different way, a cross-current lifestyle where we not only limit our freedoms not to do damage to others, but we give up our rights to serve and advance the faith in others' lives. Do you see the progression from chapter 8 to chapter 9? In chapter 8, we have principles that spell out how we should limit our, the exercise of our freedom so as not to do damage to our fellow Christians. In chapter 9, Paul is saying, now we give up our rights in order to advance the faith 
in the lives of others. Now in our text in chapter 9, Paul himself will be the example for exactly how that takes place. Paul will show us how he is willing to give up rights, rights and privileges that he has earned in order to advance the gospel. Now, uh, Buddhism is chapter 8. Christianity is chapter 9. One of the dictums in Buddhism is do no harm. And so you do no harm by limiting your freedom so as not to do damage to another. But that's not enough. The Christianity goes on and requires us to love our neighbor. The uh, famous saying of Buddha and Christ that seem to be similar but are very different are these. Buddha said, do not do unto others those things that you don't want them to do to you. Jesus says what? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, chapter 9 is that doing unto others what you would have them uh, do unto you. And Paul says, my life is an example of that, and he's calling us to do the very same thing. Now, I want to stop for just a second and make an application. Uh, Did you know that your life is an example? How you live your life, what you do is an example to others. Uh, You can't say, well, don't look at me as an example. (laughs) Uh, You're being an example. You probably learned that from someone else, and it's not a very good thing to learn. The truth of the matter is we all are examples, and and I love these uh, very talented uh, athletes and say, hey, I'm no example. Well, the sad thing is is you are, and we all are, and we should be the the right kind of example, and we should be willing, like Paul, to say, hey, look at me. You want to know what it means to be a Christian? Watch my life. See how the grace of God works itself out in my life. Now, there... There are scholars who suggest that chapter 9 is a tangent, is a parenthesis, is a rabbit trail, that Paul somehow is going off in another direction, addressing other issues, and like the, uh, and like the uh, kind of forgetful professor, he says, oh yes, what was I talking about in chapter 10? He, he returns to the issue of meat sacrifice to idols. Now, you can see from verse 2 of our text that, that Paul is concerned about how people look at him as, as an apostle, but, but that's not what he's doing here. Paul is not deviating from his point. He simply turns from the presenting problem to the heart issue because the issue of the heart is the issue that Paul wants to deal with, the heart of the people in Corinth. Now, Paul is calling us to live a life that demonstrates the gospel in foregoing not just questionable or neutral behavior, is it right to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, but he's calling us to forego and give up our rights and privileges, rights that are owed to us, privileges we have earned for the sake of Christ. This is what chapters 9 verses 1 to 18 is all about. And Paul is willing to use himself to demonstrate how that works its way out in his daily life and in his calling. So let's see exactly how it is he does this. Notice in verses 1 to 4, Paul asks four rhetorical questions. Each require the answer, yes. Paul says, am I free? Yes, Paul, you're absolutely free. The Lord Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, has set you free. He asked, am I apostle? Yes, Paul, you're an apostle. You've received the right hand of fellowship from the apostles in 
in Jerusalem and you are an apostle. Have I not seen the Lord? Yes, we've heard that story. Paul, you've seen the Lord and he's directly instructed you through uh, a revelation of his gospel. You are an apostle. It says, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? It says, yes, we have seen the evidence of your work in our lives. You are an, an apostle. And all these things are proofs that you are apostle. And Paul goes on to say, if I'm not apostles to other people in, chapter, in verse chapter two, then I certainly am to you because you are the living proof of my apostleship. And what Paul is proving by making these points is that he is an apostle of Lord Jesus Christ. And because he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's entitled to all the rights and privileges that apostles are owed. And now he begins to outline some of these rights and privileges that are owed him because of his standing before the Lord. He says, do I not have the right to eat and drink? Now, Paul is not dealing with the issue of meat sacrifice to idols here. He's not saying, I'm an apostle, I can eat meat sacrifice to idols. What he's saying is, do I not, as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, have the right to receive uh, material benefit that my physical needs might be met in order that I might give myself to the preaching and teaching of the word? And yes, every minister has the right to earn his living from his work. Paul, you have that right. Secondly, he asked the question, do I have the right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? It's interesting here that Paul talks about the brothers of the Lord. Uh, these brothers were not brothers, uh, half brothers of Jesus who were from Joseph's first family that, and, and, had a, and his wife died. These are sons of Mary and Joseph. And so um, Jesus is referring to him, referring to him here. This, this is interesting. Does, doesn't he have the right to take along a believing wife? Because remember earlier in Corinthians, Paul talked about how it's better to remain single in order that you might serve the Lord more fully and, and carefully. But, but here it seems that taking along a believing wife was of great help to a minister in his work. And let me say there's some very practical reasons why if you're a traveling minister, if you spend a lot of time on the road, it'd be very good for you to take a wife. Your wife, particularly. <laughs> With you so that uh, you don't get in trouble later on. And think how, many, think how many men's ministries would have been spared and the Lord's reputation uh, saved if, if more Ministers who spend a great deal of time on the road uh, had their wives with them. But there's another reason why these wives went along with their husbands, and that is because they would advance the work with them. Now, all of you know who have been here for any length of time at Crescent Valley Church know that, that we have an assistant pastor that's not listed on the back of the, the church page there. It's my wife, Christy. She's uh, assistant pastor at Crescent Valley Church. You know that uh, if you're getting married, when you counsel, you counsel with both of us. Uh, so you get the husband's and wife point of view and marriage counseling. You'll know that if you're a woman and you need counseling, that Christy may often sit in on that. Or if I counsel you the first time, I might hand you off to Christy. Uh, not, not because uh, <laughs> of any other reason that other than I think she's better at that than I am. <laughs> and will do a better, better, better job at that. And you know that uh, she does a, a, a pretty good job of, of loving on people in this congregation. And so for all those reasons, it makes sense to, to carry a wife along with you. And so Paul says, if I were married, don't I have the right to do just that? And everyone have to agree, yes, you have the right to do just that. The third thing Paul says is, uh, 
don't I and Barnabas have the right not to work at a job so that we can give ourselves fully to the, the preaching and teaching of the word? And, and they said, and of course you have the right to do all those things. Now, these are just the minimal rights and privileges that would be afforded to Paul and Barnabas. It is what they were owed for the work they had done as apostles in their midst. Now, here's the thing. Everyone in Corinth knew that Paul had not exercised any of these rights. He had refrained from demanding those things uh, when he went to Corinth. If you turn to Acts chapter 18, where Luke reports on what took place in Corinth, you'll read there that Paul, when he arrived, went to work with Priscilla and Aquila. He was a tent maker by trade, and so he uh, was uh, making tents there. In Corinth, we learn from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, that Paul did this in other cities as well. When he came to Thessalonica, we read, We did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden on any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to follow. It seems that this was Paul's custom when he went into a new city not to demand uh, people's support and pay him for the work that he, he did, not to expect anything from anyone, uh, but to labor and to work and establish the church. And then later when he went to a new city to encourage the, the church in the last city he worked in to help support the work of the next church. Now he always called his uh, Believers to be generous, generous and sharing with one another, generous and sharing with the church back in Jerusalem. He often took up an offering for that. But we, we find out in Philippians chapter four, verse 10, that the church in Philippi sent Paul a gift and he thanks him for that gift when uh, he in, in the book of Philippians. Not only should Paul have received these rights because he was an apostle, Paul goes on in this chapter to say it's perfectly normal for everyone in every occupation to receive some of the benefits of the fruits of the labor that they work in. And to make this point, Paul chooses three occupations. He says, look at a, look at a soldier, uh, look at a farmer, and, and look at a shepherd. Now, these are, are three very different occupations. He could have taken anyone, like I said. But these, in these three occupations, the people who are most often in them come from three different positions in life. A soldier is a paid employee. The planter of the vineyard is an owner of the vineyard. And in most cases, a shepherd was a servant, a slave. But each of them, as different as they were, had this one thing in common. It was from their work that they expected to gain the benefit of their labors. Now, this is why he says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Who tends his flock without getting some milk from it? And the, the answer to these questions are obviously, yes, you have the right to do this. So Paul has just showed that he has the right as an apostle to these, uh, these, these benefits. He's just showed from common grace that this is how life works. And now, because Paul is, is a good uh, Jewish scholar, he knows that a, uh, 
evidence is only to be accepted and proof to be made with two or three witnesses. So now Paul brings his third witness. And you might say he saved his best witness for last. You know, you've seen these uh, lawyer shows where a case is trying to be decided. And at the last minute, they bring in the, the, the witness that settles the case once and for all. And so this is what Paul does right here in, in uh, this chapter in, in verse nine. What does he do? He, he says, look, let me bring in my last witness. It's the word of God. It's a law of Moses. That, that should really count for something. This is his third witness. What does Paul do? He quotes from Deuteronomy 25, verse four. And we find it here in chapter nine, verse nine. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the ox that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sakes? Is it was written for our sakes because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in the hope of sharing in the crop. Now, in the first century, when people were harvesting their grains, you had a very narrow window in which you had to get the grain into the barns uh, before it rained and the grain began to mildew. And so when you would thresh the grain, there were two steps. One, you had to separate the grains from the stalks, and then you had to separate the husk, that is that outward shell on the grain, from the grain itself in order to use it. And the, how you would separate the uh, shell of the grain from the husk is that farmers would have a, a flat stone slab and in the center of that slab would be a, a slab would be a pole and to that on that pole there'd be either be a plant a plank or a a rope which you attach your ox to or horse and behind you attach to the horse or ox a a larger plank a heavy plank and the ox would spend its day going around in circles some of you might feel that way about some days uh, you know just spend your time going around circles but the point is this, is that because of the time sensitivity of, of this work, the work began at first light and it continued till dusk all day long and they need to get to it as quickly as possible. And uh, the Lord says, don't muzzle the ox while it's working. In other words, he should be allowed to eat uh, as, as, as he works. Now, before we, we go on to the main point of this passage, I want to make a couple of side points about this particular text. Did you notice that our Lord cares about animals? You see, long before there was a humane society or a PETA, uh, there was God's law. And God's always been concerned about the ethical treatment of animals. And uh, he was so concerned, in fact, that he said, if your animal is in danger... The animals that you're responsible for or your neighbor's animals, it doesn't make any difference if it belongs to you or not. Even if it's on the Sabbath day, the day that I've commanded you that you shall not work, you will make sure that you get that animal to safety and get it out of the danger that it is in. And that's what's meant by this getting your ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath day. From our Lord Jesus Christ, we know that uh, the Lord is our Heavenly Father is concerned about the animals. He cares about the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Uh, so we must care about animals as well. The second point I want to make about this text is I want you to look at how Paul interprets it. He looks for the principles behind the text, how they apply to larger situations, how he might take the principle that, be, that is behind the law and, and apply it to different situations. In this case, it's fairly simple. Paul takes 
the argument from the lesser to the greater. If the Lord cares about how an ox is treated to make sure that it's being fed out of the work it is doing, how much more then man has this same right to gain from his work that which is necessary to sustain his life. And so this is a a way we can look at the law and understand the law by extracting the principles out of them and applying them to other situations. Now, there are certain laws that make that very difficult. For example, the law in Deuteronomy 22.11 that says you shouldn't wear polyester blend in your suits, you know, not to mix uh, wool and uh, cotton together. The question is, what in the world is the principle behind that and how does it apply? That's a lot more difficult. Well, let me tell you what scholars say about that. They say that this was most likely a prohibition against what the Canaanites did to uh, kind of incite magical powers. You wore mixed garments to, to, uh, to, to uh, you know, much like people would have a rabbit's foot or things like that. And uh, the principle is that, you know, you shouldn't engage in magic. You shouldn't uh, exercise magic. Well, uh, the Lord cares about oxen, and he, and he certainly, how oxen are treated, and he certainly cares about us as well. Now, Paul has proven to everyone beyond a shadow of a doubt that first, he has the right of an apostle. Secondly, that he has these rights because they're the common practice among all people. And third, he has these rights because the law of God guarantee these rights that those who work in the church uh, should gain their living from the church. And what is his conclusion in verses 10 to 14? He says, the plowman and the thresher share in the harvest. He said, those who have sown spiritual things should receive material things. The priest in the temple, they gain their living from the temple. In verse 14, he says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. These are Paul's rights. He has the right to make his living from his work, and you can even call them a divine right because it comes right from the scripture itself. So that the uh, Corinthians didn't misunderstand his point, he goes on to say in verse 15, now I'm writing these things not because I'm backhandedly asking you to you know, pay up. You know, we had a deal and, and, and you owed me something. He, he's not saying that. He, he, he's not saying I'm asking for this gift. That'd be completely contrary to what he's been saying throughout the text. What he's gone to great length to prove is that he has the rights and privileges and to remind the Corinthians that he did not exercise those right and, rights and privileges. Why? Because he's demonstrating that there is another way that we're called to live. Why didn't he insist on his rights? Well, look at verse 12. He says, we have not made use of this right, but we have endured everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, this Greek word for obstacle in this text is only used this one time in all of scripture. Just this one time. In Koine Greek, and uh, classical Greek, it's used to describe what you do to stop an advancing army. If you've uh, seen the musical Les Miserables or the, the movie that's based off of it, you'll know that you know, they made the barricades in Paris to, to keep the armies uh, from coming into their quartier uh, there in, in Paris. But the point is these are, these are large obstructions that you put up 
to keep uh, hostels out. You know, it's kind of like those uh, big barriers around the, right, the White House uh, down in Washington, D.C. There's no way you're going to get by, by those things. Uh, another way that you would prevent uh, armies from invading is you would dig up the road. You would build deep holes that they, they couldn't get over. And so you would do anything you could to keep people from advancing. Now, Paul is saying, I have not demanded any of my rights, not one because I did not want anything to keep anyone from coming to the truth of the gospel. You see, Paul is more concerned about the reputation of the gospel before a cynical and watching world than he is about his own rights. Times haven't changed very much, have they? People are just as cynical today about money and religion, and they have a good right to be because there are a lot of charlatans who would use religion to uh, take all your money. Paul took no money from the church when he first did his work there so that no one could accuse him of doing this for the money. Paul is telling us that it isn't enough that we avoid from causing our brother to stumble. We also must use our liberty, Paul says, that we are willing to forego our rights to see others advance in their faith. Instead of demanding what you're entitled to, are you prepared to give up those rights for the sake of the gospel and the advancement of the gospel in other people's lives? Now, one might ask the question, do you really want to live that way? And I thought of Frank, Frank, did you read my sermon before? Because <laughs> you made a lot of good points in the first part of the service that went right along with my sermon. Uh, aren't you making yourself a slave to others if you live this way, if you're giving up your rights for the sake of others? But that's not the case. Why? Because to live this way is to be free, free from the need to constantly be asserting your rights on others, free to give yourself genuinely, wholly, and completely to others. Paul is calling on us not to make a few adjustments in our lives, not to give a, a few more hours to volunteering, not to get, spend a little money on a GoFundMe page. Uh, what he is doing, he is calling us to live a life that's centered on Christ rather than on ourselves, giving up our rights for the sake and benefit of others. Now, why is it so difficult for us to do, it, do that? Why is that almost impossible? Because you see, from the very first time in our lives that we could assert our rights on others at about the age of two, we said things like, this is mine. I want that. Now, too many Christians are still there in their spiritual lives. And the Corinthians are there because what you have is you have those who want to eat meat demanding their rights and those who say you shouldn't eat meat demanding that their rights be imposed on others. And Paul is saying, stop it. You're just proving the fact of what I said in chapter three, that you are all spiritual children. This childishness is seen in our lives today when we say this is my right. Paul is calling us to a different way of, to live. He's calling us to a mature faith, that mature faith where we give up our rights in laying them down for others. Yes, that is those hard-earned rights and privileges that you've worked for. 
And he shares with us why he lives this way. Look at verse 18. He says, what then is my reward? Now, you might be thinking, well, your reward, Paul, is that in heaven you'll get that wreath that you talk about in chapter 9, verse 25, that imperishable wreath. But no, that's not his reward. Listen to what Paul's reward is for giving up his right to earn his living from the gospel. That I may preach, that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. What is Paul's reward? The joy of living this kind of life. The joy of pouring yourself out in service to others, giving up your rights for the benefit of others. That is is better than life, Paul says. In fact, he says it in verse 15. I would rather die. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my grounds for boasting. Now, this is an interesting contrast because remember earlier in this chapter, Paul talks about the boasting of the Corinthians. He says, you're boasting about all your knowledge, about all that you have. Paul says, I boast too. I boast in what I give up. I boast in what I give up for the sake of the gospel. And you know what's so beautiful about Paul when he does this? You know who you see in Paul's every action when he lives this way? Who is it? Jesus. You see the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ lives in him, the life of Christ flows through every one of Paul's actions. Paul's life is not oriented around his rights, But his liberty and freedom is to joyfully give himself to others. Now, I want to say maybe a hard word to some of you this morning. There's a lot of us who like to live the victim status. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know how desperate my life has been. You don't know the things I've suffered. You're right, we don't. You're right, terrible things may have happened to you. But if you hold on to those things, thinking that therefore I deserve certain things and and, uh, need certain things, you are going to be stuck in your victim status all your life. And you're never going to grow and you're never going to get beyond those things. The Lord Jesus Christ can set you free from that and can change your heart so that you're not so wrapped up on yourselves, but so that you can give yourself to others. Now, here's the sad truth. Every one of us is stuck right there. Every one of us is stuck right there, and we need the power of the gospel and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to set us free from that and to show us that to live life is to live life giving ourselves to others. That's where we find our joy and purpose and satisfaction. Reminds me of what the author of Hebrews said about Jesus when he writes, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the God in heaven. Now, notice Paul didn't say, I chose this kind of life. I chose to do this. No, he said that it was laid upon me. I can't get away from it. In verse 16, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And you said, okay, Paul, that's great for you. You're a preacher. You've got to do that. But he's not saying that for himself. He's saying that about every one of us. You see, every one of us. If we're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's taken hold of us. He has a purpose and a calling for us. We were made to do something. And when we find that and we give ourselves to him and to others, giving up our rights in serving them, we discover what life is all about. Now, every one of us has a gift from God that he wants to use 
as a blessing in other people's lives. We'll learn that when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And your job is to discover the purpose for which you were made and begin to use that to bless other people. Now you might be thinking, well, I have no idea what my gift is. Well, the good thing is, is that God's probably got you well involved in it and you're probably doing most of it right now. And so just continue to do it and do it and do it well. Discover your purpose and calling for life. Now, there is only one way to do that. And that is to, like Paul, give yourself to Jesus Christ, to offer yourself to him and allow him to live in you so that you might serve others freely. Now, in a a group like this, we're probably all at very different stages in our lives. There are some of you here that are saying, no way, I'm not giving myself away. I've got to hold on to myself. I've got to keep hold of myself because if I give myself away, there won't be anything left. Well, the, the, the truth and irony of the gospel is this. If you hold on to yourself, you what? You lose yourself. If you give yourself away, you find it. There's others of us here who might be mad at God, angry. Yeah, I gave myself away, God, and I just got hurt. Did you hear the voice of Jesus saying, yeah, I understand that because when I gave myself away, they crucified me. <laughs> Where were you? I was right there with you. Why do you allow that to happen to me? Because I wanted you to really give yourself away. <laughs> you know, there's giving yourself away and then there's really giving yourself away. And then there's the rest of us uh, who need to give ourselves away anew to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that way, when we give ourselves to him, he will live in us so that we will give ourselves to others. And nowhere is this message more clearly taught than at the table of our Lord. Would the elders please come forward?